Last week, Brian walked us through Genesis chapters 4 and 5, and he taught us about the beginning of death. Brian unpacked chapter 4 by telling us that chapter 4 begins with hope. As Eve named her firstborn son Cain and said that with God's help, she'd gotten a man from the Lord. She really thought that Cain was going to be the promised one, that he would be the one who would solve the issue of sin that would, would draw us back. But it, uh, and clearly, faith always brings us hope. God had promised that a Redeemer would come, uh, who would deal with the problem of sin once and for all, and, and God had added that the Redeemer would be a man who just descended from a woman. So it's really kind of natural that Eve would think when Cain was born that, well, here he is. The promised Redeemer is here. God is going to deal with the issue of sin once and for all. And, and uh, of course, as Brian pointed out, Eve couldn't have been more wrong because Cain didn't ultimately bring life. He took life the life of his brother. And again, like Brian pointed out, God approached Cain with questions about his brother in the same way that that God had approached Adam and Eve with questions about the tree there in the garden. When God asked Adam and Eve about the fruit, Adam and Eve each individually admitted that, yes, they had eaten the fruit. They They had made that choice. But when God asked Cain where Abel was, Cain said very plainly that he didn't know where Abel was, as though Abel might have, might have, I don't know, gotten up and wandered off after Cain murdered him and buried him in the sand. Brian re- reminded us that, that God had warned Cain that sin was crouching at his door, lying in wait at his door like an evil beast, and would consume him if he didn't do something about that. And I apologized to Brian. I told him I had that picture that to me represents that evil beast that crouches at that crouched at Cain's door and at ours, um, um, but I, I didn't get it to him, and so I'm apologizing to him for that. But I'll tell you what, I'm not apologizing for, to him for the thing that he complained about last week. Were you here when he complained about the fact that, that I get all the good messages and he gets all the bad ones? He has to talk about death, I talk about salvation. You know, I, 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 I sat with him earlier this week and I said, hey, bucko, listen. You may have gotten ahead to talk about death, but this morning I have to talk about God's regret and the Nephilim. So buck up here, you know. Anyway, I'm just going to leave it there. It's not like I'm really worked up. But God added that Cain, if Cain didn't deal with that, that beast that was crouching at his door, that sin nature that was now within himself, that sinful bent, if he didn't deal with that, it would consume him. It would completely take him over. But Cain wasn't inclined to listen to, to, to God or take God at his word. In other words, God warned Cain. And if Cain believed God, if he had taken God at his word, if he had had heeded God's warning, then Abel's life, and and in a real sense, Cain's life would have been saved. Adam and Eve had listened to the serpent and to each other and had eaten from the tree. Instead of listening to God, and and in the same way, Cain decided to listen to that very broken part of himself instead of listening to God. And I hope that you took note of what Brian said about that. When we listen to that broken part of us, when we give into our sin nature, there are always consequences. In fact, the way that Brian phrased that was that sin will always take us further than we want to go, keep us longer than we want to stay, cost us more than we want to pay, and hurt others more than we can say. That is the way it works with the old nature. That's the only capacity the old nature has. 
And we know that that is an accurate take on, on, on things because by the end of chapter 4, Abel is dead. And it seems that the world is doomed to go the way of Cain since only one kingdom remains, the kingdom of darkness. But then Adam and Eve have another son whom they name Seth. And Seth becomes the foundation, the ancestor the, uh, of generations of people who will live and move and breathe in the kingdom of light. And there are a couple of other things that we'll look back at later, but for right now, that concludes our review and opens up the way for us to begin to unpack chapter 6. And as always, <coughs> we'll begin that process by standing and reading the passage aloud together. So if you'll stand with me, let's read together from Genesis chapter 6 verses 1 through 8. When human beings began to increase in number on the earth and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of humans were beautiful and they married any of them they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit will not contend with humans forever, for they are mortal. Their days will be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward. When the sons of God went to the daughters of humans and had children by them, they were the heroes of old, men of renown. <clears throat> the Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth, and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. The Lord regretted that he had made human beings on the earth, and his heart was deeply troubled. So the Lord said, I will wipe from the face of the earth the human race I have created, and with them the animals, the birds, and the creatures that move along the ground, for I regret that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. While you're still standing, take a breath to remember that song that we just sang. Ask God to open your eyes to help you to see him there in this passage. Thank you, Father, for hearing our prayers. In Jesus' name, amen. You've probably already guessed that the story I've chosen to tell you, you've figured that out, but, but as you listen to the story about God and Noah, uh, I'd ask you to keep in mind that the end of chap by the end of chapter 4 of Genesis, there are two kingdoms in place on earth. One is the kingdom of light or the kingdom of the God followers, and the other is the kingdom of darkness or the kingdom of the not-God followers. And by the end of chapter 4, we've begun to understand how twisted and broken the kingdom of darkness had become. Chapter 5 tells us that people from both kingdoms were facing a 100% mortality rate, with one exception, and, and we'll talk about him later. But for now, please understand that as long as these two kingdoms are distinct, as long as they remain separated from one another, they'll both follow a predictable track to a predictable end. But let's wonder this morning, what might happen if the two kingdoms don't remain distinct? With that background, this is the story from God's Word from Genesis chapter 6. Population of Earth, planet Earth continued to grow and there were more and more people everywhere you turned. And, and there were two kinds of people during those days. There were those who were called the sons of God, and there were those who could only be called human beings or the sons of men. Over time, these two groups began to mix and intermarry. This happened when the sons of God saw how beautiful the daughters of men were. And it seems that when one of the sons of God married one of these women, 
He made, it, made that decision based solely on how beautiful that woman was. This brought an eventual reaction from the Lord. He said, my spirit will not always contend with, and I go on contending and opposing humans forever, for humans are mortals and their mortality will play out for all of them in no more than 120 years. There were bullies and tyrants living on the planet and among the people in those days, true giants of their time. And that was something that continued after the days of Noah. These giants, bullies, and tyrants were born when the sons of God and the beautiful daughters of humans had children together. These giants of their time were the heroes of old, men of fame, men of renown, and men of prominence. The human race began to spiral downward into the depths and darkness of depravity. And the Lord took note of how wicked human beings had become. In fact, as the Lord looked at the people of the earth, he saw that every inclination of the thoughts of their hearts, the hearts of the human race, was only evil all the time. And as the Lord saw all that develop, he regretted that he had made human beings on the earth and his heart was deeply troubled. The Lord said, I've created the human race, but I will wipe them from the face of the earth and with them I will destroy all of the animals and, and birds and creatures that move along the ground. I will do that because I regret that I've made them. But Noah found grace, found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Now, Noah was a righteous man, a man who could not be blamed by the people of his day. This is because he walked faithfully with his God. Noah had a wife and three married sons, Ham, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And, and remember, this little family was living in the midst of a totally corrupt world. So God spoke to Noah and told him that he was planning to put an end to all the people on earth because the earth was so full of violence. God then added that he would destroy the earth itself along with the people who had so thoroughly corrupted it. And then God revealed why he was telling Noah all this. He was telling Noah this because he wanted Noah to build an ark. In fact, God told Noah to build an ark that was 450 feet long, 75 feet across the beam, and 45 feet high. Noah was to build it with rooms in it and coat the inside and the outside with pitch. There was to be a door in the middle of the ark, on the side of the ark, and inside there would be lower, middle, and upper decks. And why all this work? Why was Noah supposed to do all this? Well, the Lord made that clear too. He was going to bring a flood that would destroy all life under the heavens. And when the flood struck, all creatures that breathed would die. But then God added that he would establish his covenant with Noah. And God's covenant with Noah would make it possible for Noah to enter the ark with his family, his wife, his sons, and his sons' wives. And then God told Noah to gather two of every kind of bird, animal, and creature that moved along the ground. And Noah was to do this with the goal of keeping them alive. Then Noah was to gather every kind of fruit and nut and vegetable and grain, everything that can be eaten. And God then told him that he was, that he was to store all of that food so that Noah and his family and all the animals would be able to eat during their time in the ark. And Noah got busy right away. And as we would expect of a man who was walking faithfully with God, he did everything that God told him to do. And that's the story from God's Word.
Now, as we begin to unpack this passage, I expect that you still remember that Brian pointed out that chapters 4 and 5 of Genesis begin with the story of Cain and Abel, the two sons of Adam and Eve. And now I want to point out that Genesis chapter 4 comes right after Genesis chapter 3. And I wouldn't expect you to know that, but I am, after all, Bible college trained. Let's just put it that way. And beyond that, I get paid by you to know stuff like Genesis chapter 3 comes right before Genesis chapter 4. And now I have to say that I'm talking this silly and taking this to such strange lengths because I'm, I'm, I'm feeling the need to remind you that the chapter divisions in our English Bible did not exist in the Hebrew. They weren't in the Hebrew Bible. Instead, the original text is one long story that God tells us in several subplots as he introduces himself to us. Remember, Genesis is God introducing himself to us. In Genesis, God shared his eternal, spiritual, intangible, ethereal essence and made himself tangible to us. It's our first brush with him as we read the book of Genesis. In the Western world, we've spent centuries now trying to systematize God, I love it, uh, so that we can understand and explain him. But I, I, I can tell you this morning that our systems always fall short. Our systems can never fully explain God, and, and because of that, we can never fully understand him. And I can also tell you that that's not our fault. Look what God says about himself in Isaiah 55. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. I know that every one of us here worries at times because we get asked questions by people and it seems that we can't understand God. No matter how hard we try, we can't fully explain him. But the truth is, oh, hear this, we cannot understand God we can only experience him. Every one of us here today has experienced God. He stood beside you as you stood beside that hospital bed. Or he put his arms around you as you lay there in that hospital bed. Or you've heard the cry of a newborn infant in the delivery room. Or you've run out of money before you've run out of month and still somehow managed to survive. Or you've had lifelong friends who stood beside you through thick and thin, or you've watched your kids grow or other kids grow, and despite the mess that this world is in, you've seen those same kids not only survive, but thrive as they've gone on to grow families of their own. You stood in his presence this morning and worshipped him, and now you're taking the time to listen to his word. And all of that, in all of that, you've experienced God. And in all of those experiences and so much more, your understanding of him has continued to grow because of your experience. And while your understanding of him will never be complete here on earth, your experience with him can continue to grow for as long as you live. God's word is alive. And as long as you continue to pursue him in his word, and, and, and as, soon as, as long as you continue to pursue the, the bits and pieces of what your life means, he'll bring his word to you, uh, he'll bring it to life in you as he continues to teach through you and through your experiences with him. And please understand that we don't just experience God in the, in the warm fuzzies of life like our worship time this morning. We experience him just as truly during the long, 
dark, cold nights of the soul, when, as Laura Story puts it, his mercies come to us in disguise. So I want you to know that no matter what, I intend to keep pursuing him, and I, I hope that's your plan as well. Now, that wasn't a digression. I said all that because moments ago, I revealed to you that chapter 3 precedes chapter 4 of Genesis, and now I, I want to point out something even more startling. Chapter 2 of Genesis comes right before chapter 3. And once again, I'm calling you back to the truth that this is one continuous story. A story that God's telling us about how he's interacted with creation. A story that God is using to introduce himself to us. In chapter 1, he created everything just by speaking the word. By saying simple things like, let there be light. There should be light. And there was. It happened instantly as he spoke it. That's how powerful he is. And by the time he was done creating, he was able to say that it was good. Very good, in fact. And that included the tree that gave the knowledge of good and evil. Because that tree established God's authority there in the garden. But that speak and there was pattern was interrupted in chapter 2 as God retells, recounts creation for us. That speak and there was pattern was interrupted in chapter 2 when God did not speak human beings into being. What did he do? He shaped them with his own hands. He shaped a body for Adam, and, and then, and, and then he, he breathed his spirit into Adam. Our, our hands, our feet, our, our, everything about us that are physically is able to sense and communicate with the outside world, and, and everything about Adam, the, Adam's spirit was able to sense and communicate with God. But then in, and, and Adam and Eve were physically alive and, and able to sense, but also spiritually alive, and, and, and they were in touch with God. But then in, in chapter 3... Adam and Eve made the fateful and forever damning decision to eat the fruit that God told them not to eat. And while they remained physically alive for several hundred years, they immediately died spiritually. In other words, they were still able to sense and communicate with the outside world, but they were no longer able to sense and communicate with God. They became what Paul would later call fleshly creatures. They were physically alive but spiritually dead. They maintained their physical connection to the world around them, but they were disconnected from the life of God. But there in the garden, God told Adam and Eve about the promised one, and God promised that he would send someone to deal with the issue of sin once and for all. And as God explained all that, Adam and Eve decided to take God at his word, and God responded to their faith by killing innocent animals to cover Adam's, Adam and Eve's shame and atone for their sin. They had made the decision to step out of God's kingdom. But God redeemed and restored them through the shed blood. But here's something we need to understand. They were still broken. They were still very broken. They had been perfect when they were part of God's kingdom. But now that, that, but now that perfection is gone even though they've chosen to believe God once again. And then in chapter 4, Cain and Abel were born to Adam and Eve. And, and when faced with the choice, Abel chose by faith to be part of God's kingdom, the kingdom of light. But Cain refused to take God at his word, refused to believe God. And as he did, he chose to be part of Lucifer's kingdom, the kingdom of darkness. Cain then murdered Abel, went away from the presence of the Lord and never came back. And as the story of, of Cain and Abel unfolded, it looked for a moment as though the kingdom of darkness had won 
until Seth was born. And as Seth grew up, he chose to take God at his word. He chose to believe God. And because of that, the people that descended from Seth began to call upon the name of the Lord again. And so by the time we get to the beginning of chapter 5, there are two kingdoms. Two kingdoms. One has descended from Cain and live in spiritual darkness, separated from God. And the other has descended from Seth and they live in the light. And as we dig deeper into chapter 5, we discover that people from both kingdoms were suffering the consequences of Adam's choice to disobey God. So the people of the... And, and that consequence was that oft-repeated mantra as you hear their story. And he died, and he died, and he died. And it says that about everybody that lived in the kingdom of darkness and the people in the kingdom of the light. They all shared death in common but the two kingdoms were different when it came to life. I say that because the lifestyles that came out of these two kingdoms couldn't be more different. In the, in the, in the kingdom of darkness, there was murder and pride and boasting and continual hiding for, from God. But things are different in the kingdom of light. Look what it says in Genesis 5. When Enoch had lived 65 years, he became the father of Methuselah. After he became the father of Methuselah, Enoch walked faithfully with God 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Enoch lived a total of 365 years. Enoch walked faithfully with God, and he was no more because God took him away. Can you imagine? Enoch walked faithfully with God for 300 years. And that helps us to understand that people who live in the kingdom of darkness tend to lose their way, as you would in the darkness. And people who live in the kingdom of light tend to walk with God. By the way, pay attention to that phrase there, walk faithfully with God, because it's going to come up again. So there are two distinct kingdoms that are headed in two completely different directions. But I wonder what would happen if people from one kingdom were to begin mingling and being influenced by the people from the other kingdom? What would be the outcome there? Would the people from the kingdom of light pull the people from the darkness into the light? Or would the people from the kingdom of darkness pull the people from the light into the darkness that, that characterized their lives? And either way, if either one of those, darkness or light, darkness to light or, or light to darkness, were to go on for hundreds of years, would we then have more people who would walk faithfully with God? Or would we have more people who are constantly hiding from God in the darkness? Well, remember, as we've been saying, God's introducing himself to us here in Genesis. And in this part of the story this morning, he's going to answer those questions for us. I warn you, he's going to use some strange terms that I've been complaining about already, and I apologize for that. He's going to use some strange terms to, to describe what's going on, but... I want us to remember that this story is told from God's perspective, God's point of view up above. So we'd expect him to tell the story in a way that makes sense to him. It may not entirely make sense to us from the get-go, but it makes sense to him, and that's what matters. And we'd also expect that he'll help us to understand his perspective if we just take the time to seek it out as we study. So with this two kingdoms idea in place... Let's wonder whether light and life will win out or if darkness and death will overwhelm the planet. And as we ask that question, <laughs> I 
As we ask that question, you may be surprised to discover that the answer to that question begins with marriage, of all things. Marriage is our first stopover as we tour Genesis chapter 6 and learn about the state of the world at that time. And marriage becomes important here because, as we'll see, uh, whom we choose to marry has direct influence, direct bearing on how mingled the kingdom of light becomes with the kingdom of darkness. In Genesis chapter 6, the sons of God, the men who were God's God followers, chose wives from among the daughters of men, women who were not God followers. And it appears that those men chose those women based solely on their beauty. And let me explain to you why I would say that. I don't believe that God was putting his people in a physical bind. I, I don't believe that God was forcing godly men to choose between physical beauty and heart beauty. <laughs> let's think this through and let's dial back to Cain and Seth, the two men who started this division. We know from what we've seen in Genesis so far that the descendants of Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and the descendants of Seth began to call on the name of the Lord. Now we know that both Seth and Cain lived for hundreds of years, so let's just project, project ahead to a time when Seth would be talking to a young man like some of the young men that we have sitting here, uh, a, man, a young man who was a God follower. Can you hear Seth saying to that young man, son, you need to know the beauty is only skin deep. That means you've got yourself two choices here. You can marry a woman who is not a, a God follower, and if you, need, if you do, you need to know that her heart is going to be ugly, but she's going to be beautiful. Or you can marry a woman who's a God, father, a God follower, and if you do, you need to know that her heart is going to be beautiful, but she's going to be ugly. That's not the bind that God is putting these young men in as they go. What I'm trying to say is that the women who descended from Eve through Cain were beautiful physically, but because they were not God followers, their hearts were impaired. But the women who descended from Eve through Seth were every bit as beautiful physically, and because they were God followers, their hearts were beautiful as well. Like so many of the women that are sitting here in this room this morning. And if we come back to Genesis 6, in the time between Seth and Noah, how, how did the men who were God followers decide who they're going to marry? What did they do when it came time to take a wife? I think it's clear from the text that the men who were God followers said to themselves, I know that this woman is not a God follower, but she's smoking hot. So I'm going to marry her, even though I'm surrounded by women who are God followers and are also Smoking hot. And I don't mean to be crude as I talk about this, but look what it says in the first two verses of Genesis chapter 6. When human beings began to increase in number on the earth and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of humans were beautiful and they married any of them they chose. Now, as an aside, I can tell you that there are Bible teachers who would say that the sons of God in this verse are angels, and as a nod to them, they'd steer you to the, to the book of Job where it says that the sons of God presented themselves before God and that Satan was there. He's talking that particular reference, the sons of God are angels. It means that God created them. It means that, it, but sometimes the scripture uses the term sons of God 
and it means angels, but that's not what it means here. And I say that because of something that Jesus said. In Matthew twenty-two thirty, Jesus said, At the resurrection, people will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. We know for sure because of what Jesus said that one of the things that the angels don't do is marry and they're not given in marriage. And when we compare Scripture with Scripture, we can very confidently say that we are not looking at angels in Genesis chapter 6. We're not looking at angels and humans having offspring together. We're looking at two very different kingdoms because God has laid that out coming up to chapter 6. The sons of God and the daughters of men bonding in marriage, mingling in the most significant way that two kingdoms can mingle. And we've already been wondering what would happen if people from one kingdom were to begin mingling and being influenced by the people from the other kingdom, if the God followers were to mingle in marriage with the not God followers. Would the world be a brighter place after that, or would it, be, or would it get darker? Well, we can quibble about that, or we can just look at how God reacted in verse 3. Then the Lord said, my spirit will not contend. God had been contending with these guys. My spirit will not contend with humans forever, for they are mortal. Their days will be 120 years. Hey, God's patience never runs out, but his justice requires that he take action. The people of the world have already been overwhelmed by darkness, all of them. But in his grace, God's going to give them another 120 years to sort things out. But we're about to see that left to ourselves, the human race doesn't get better over time. Left to itself, society doesn't improve over time. And that's because at the end of the day, we're still fallen people who descended from Adam, the guy that decided to leave God's kingdom on our behalf. And so God set aside another 120 years, not because he believes that people are going to start getting it right but because we need to prove to ourselves that we truly deserve God's justice. All during that time that led up to Noah's day, God was contending with humankind as he sought to pull us into the light, but we simply would not be pulled. Instead of being pulled into the light, into the, light the men who were part of the kingdom of light were marrying women who were part of the kingdom of darkness, and they were choosing their wives from no motivation other than a lust for beauty. That's all that they were after. So these two kingdoms began to mingle when they should have remained separate. And as they continued to mingle, their depravity reached new heights. And this mingling of the two kingdoms unified the two kingdoms. And as the qualities for powerful good mingled with the qualities for powerful evil, the union of those two kingdoms produced a new kind of person, something that Moses calls the Nephilim. Thank you, Brian. Look at verse 4. The Nephilim were on earth in those days and also afterward. When the sons of God went to the daughters of humans and had children by them. They were the heroes of old, men of renown. And this is where some teachers will say that when angels get together with humans, they produce physical giants. But once again, I'm, I'm going to say that that's not what's happening here at all. Instead, this mingling of the two kingdoms produced men who were giants of their time, men of immense influence and, and heroic proportions who could have led humanity in the right direction but chose not to. Instead, in just the same way that sin overwhelmed Cain, evil overwhelmed nearly every person on the planet as the corruption began to spread like a lethal virus. Death was reproducing itself in both 
kingdoms among the God followers and and those who were not God followers. And the results were devastating. Look at verse 5. The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. The two kingdoms have mingled in every way and the result, the light has all but gone out. And I'm just going to say it, given the choices that people have made, given the darkness that's covered everything and everyone, we can't blame God for reacting as he did in those days before the flood. Things were at one time perfect in the Garden of Eden. And human beings threw it all away. And then there was that clear distinction between the people of God and the people of this world. And human beings once again threw that all away. And how's God supposed to react to all this? Look at what it says in verse 6. The Lord regretted that he had made human beings on the earth. And his heart was deeply troubled. Let's be clear here. That word regret does not mean that God was surprised by this turn of events. And it doesn't mean that he didn't see this coming. Think about God's, again, about God's intention. God's stated purpose when he made human beings was what? They will bear our image. They will carry our likeness to the rest of creation. But now every inclination and every thought of every heart was only evil all the time. All of that is gone. And I'd like to suggest that given this, given this turn of events, regret and a troubled heart are the only way to describe what God is feeling right now. God had clearly stated his plan for people when he created us. And now people have walked away from God's plan and become the opposite of what he intended. So how is God supposed to respond to that? What's he supposed to do? Well, those people who misuse and misinterpret grace will tell you that he's just supposed to shrug his shoulders and do nothing. But God's not in the habit of doing nothing, and we know that he's already responded to this kind of thing before. Think about it. When Lucifer fell, God banished him from heaven, right? And when Adam and Eve fell, God banished them from the garden. So what do you suppose God will do now to the people of the earth? Well, the answer to that question is in verse 7. So the Lord said, I will wipe from the face of the earth. This is a cleanup action. So the Lord said, I will wipe from the face of the earth the human race I've created, and with them the animals, the birds, and the creatures that move along the ground, for I regret that I have made them. God knew all along that this descent into darkness would happen. But we thought better of ourselves. We thought that we could handle it. We thought that if God would just tell us what to do, we would do it. And now... We've made another mess right there before the flood of the world that God created, and God has declared that he's about to wipe out the darkness. But we're going to see his grace at work once again. Despite the judgment that God's pronounced, look at what it says in verse 8. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And look at what verse 9 adds to what verse 8 has just told us. This is the account of Noah and his family. Noah was a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time, and he walked faithfully with God. Noah had three sons, Ham, Shem, 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 Ham, and Japheth. Did you catch it in the midst of my stumbling there? Did you catch it? God says the same thing about Noah that he said about Enoch. He walked faithfully with God. 
There had been two kingdoms, and, and now there's just one kingdom. The entire mass of humanity has collapsed into the darkness, into the darkness. But now, and the rest of chapter 6 is in part a, a recap. That's where we learn that the ark's going to be 450 feet long, 75 feet across the beam, 45 feet high, coated with pitch inside and out, made of cypress wood. It's a lot of details that are very important, but to the point that we're trying to make, Noah found favor. There's all this detail. He's supposed to get all this food and, and all these animals, and, and it's, it's this immense thing. And with all of that detail in mind, we need to look at the last verse of chapter 6. Noah did everything just as God commanded him. I can't think of anyone in human history who was, who, of whom God asked more than he asked of Noah. And while Enoch walked with God for 300 years, I don't know of anyone who served God as consistently or as long as Noah did. What I'm trying to say is that Noah did more good over a longer period of time than anybody else ever has. And I, we have to ask, what is all that hard work and, and consistency and good deeds, what's that going to get for Noah? Is that what's going to get him a seat on the ark? All that hard work, is that's why he's going to survive the judgment to come? Well, in answer to that, let me tell you what's going to happen here. What's going to happen here is that you're going to have to come back next week because that was, that's what Brian is going to be talking about, and, he, and, and you just have to be here. God is going to help us to understand that he's the God of the second chance. What, what have we learned from the story of God and Noah? God is the God of the second chance. He gave humanity a second chance with the birth of Seth. He gave humanity a, a second chance as the kingdoms began to grow. He wants us to live. He's, he's, he's helped us to see that, he, that he's a God that has no needs. But he wants us to walk faithfully and obediently with him. He wants us to live differently than the people of this world. Of course, by the time chapter 6 begins, humanity's thrown that all away. They've turned their back on God. And though he knows everything that's going to happen, he's still a God who can deep, be deeply troubled and feel regret. And I have to wonder how often he looks at my life and is troubled by the choices that I'm making, despite the fact that the Spirit of God is within me. We're not basically good people until we come to faith in Christ. We're not basically good people, and, and uh, we don't need a chance to prove ourselves because we've proved it all along. Another thing that God's revealed to us in this, this chapter is that our God is gracious, but that doesn't mean that he's, he's going to pat us on the head and pretend that we, didn't, that we did a good job at proving ourselves. Instead, God's revealed himself to be a God who hates sin. And from the story of God and Noah, we begin to understand that God punishes sinful people. And I know that's not a popular theme, but it's true. The story of God and Noah, God also reveals to us that because of his grace, his grace doesn't prompt him to, to pretend that we're not sinful, but because of his grace... God always provides a way to redeem us from the sinful mess that we've made and a means to escape his punishment. And as God turns his attention to Noah, hear this, he helps us to understand that he, he's a God who loves it when we take him at his word. And when the moment comes to save the world, God goes looking for Noah. God's going to do it again when we meet Abraham. 
He intends to save the world. My, my wife gave me a wonderful picture that we have hanging above our bed that recounts the words of the song Canaan Bound, where, where Abraham turns to Sarah and says, we're going. In the morning, we're going. Take me by my arm. We're traveling off. I trembled at the voice of God, Abraham says. A voice of love and thunder deep. In love, he means to save us all. And Sarah, love has chosen you and me. So let's go. That's the guy I want to be. When God makes up his mind in the midst of the mess that he's going to save this broken world, that he's going to save that guy on the, sitting on the airplane, when God makes up his mind that he wants to save the youth of our nation, that's when I want to hear him say, where's Big Al? Just look in your direction. When he makes up his mind that he wants to save somebody in our community, where's Carl? Where's where's?" He makes up his mind that he wants to save tribal people, unreached tribal people around the planet. I want him to look around and say, where's Jay? I want to be that guy. I want to be the guy that, that has caught God's eye. And when God makes up his mind that he's going to make a huge difference, I want him to look for me. And I hope you feel the same way. Genesis chapter 6 we need to respond to it. How do we do that? In one minute? Well, we've got a work day coming up on Saturday. Right? Maybe we should all show up and just start building an ark. I mean, that would, that's one of the lessons that comes from... No, I don't think... We don't have to do what Noah did. We have to live like Noah lived. That's what catches God's eye. Noah was a light that shined in the darkness. And that's something that Paul talks about in Colossians 1, 9 to 14. I know it's small, but try to read along as I read it. Read it to yourself as I read it to you. For this reason, since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you. We continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might so that you may have great endurance and patience and giving joyful thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of his holy people in the kingdom of light for he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves in whom we have redemption. The forgiveness of sins. Will you stand with me in the presence? Father and our God, we come to you today and thank you for your glory. Thank you for your goodness. Thank you for your otherness, God, that you are so far removed from us and yet you have come here. You have pursued us. You chased us down and saved us. And now, God, we pray that we would become the kind of people, because we live in the kingdom of life and, and walk faithfully with you, that we would be the kind, of, the kind of people that you would look for when the moment comes that you mean to do something amazing, something great, something for your glory, something for the good of, of people who are lost in the darkness. God, pick us, choose us, send us. 
Father, thank you for every person that's here in this room, and I trust. I pray that every one of them has trusted you as their Savior to save them from their sin, and that we all stand here so full, so controlled by the Spirit of God that we can move at a moment's notice in any direction for your glory and for the good of others. Thank you for the privilege that we have of mentioning the name of Jesus to you when we pray. Amen. We're headed out. Go find somebody that you can share the gospel with, somebody that you can share the good news with, and go make disciples.